You know, it's great to have guest speakers now and then. Here's somebody from the outside. It's great. And uh, this is Dr. Jeff Leo. And Jeff and I have known each other for, gosh, 10 years. 10 years, maybe. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Jeff and I actually went through our doctoral program together at Fuller. Uh, and we shared the same doctoral mentor. Uh, Jeff also worked for a number of years at Lake Avenue Congregational Church. I think he was the college pastor, mm -hmm. young adult pastor yep. there. Yep. And he currently serves with InterVarsity Fellowship as the Director of Theological Formation. And my title here is Pastor of Theological Formation. I, this is kind of a thing now, I guess. So yeah, great. Anyway, <laughs> it's great to have uh, Jeff with us and please join me in welcoming him as he brings God's word to us. Good to be here. It's a privilege to be bringing the Word of God to you this morning. Thanks to Robert one more time. I thanked him earlier. I'll thank him again. Um, yeah, theological formation is a thing. And I think, you know, to be a trained theologian and to be working in the church comes with some hazards. I think people have certain preconceived notions about what theology is. And, you know, I work in a campus ministry where people graduate from undergrad at age 22 and they begin doing ministry work. And the biggest thing that I have to do is to persuade them, whoa, you need theology. Because, you know, what is theology? Isn't it just, my, my dad once asked me, like, isn't that where people just like make stuff up? <laughs> and uh, so Bob and I have to justify ourselves, but also I think when we do our jobs really well, you're not going to think to yourself, wow, I'm doing theology. You will have a transformative encounter with the Lord Jesus Christ, and that should be the bread and butter of our existence. So I hope we do our job as well, and I hope we serve you in that way. It's nice to be a trained theologian, but I hope you never find out. <clears throat> it is a pleasure to be here. You may not know, but I occupy the office just over here in, I don't know what wing of the church building this is, but um, Robert was gracious enough to uh, give somebody with too many books a place to store them and then also do my telecommuting work. I work nationally for InterVarsity Christian Fellowship where I am the director of theological formation, which means that all 1,700 of our staff will come through me to receive foundational theological training for the work of campus ministry. And I've been doing campus ministry stuff for the last 18 years. So, you know, even though this is your first time seeing me, I'm not exactly a greenhorn. I've been doing this for a while. Uh, 10 of those last 18 years, 12 of those last, 18, no, 10 of those last 18 years, I was in school uh, at Trinity in Chicago and then Fuller for eight of those years. That's where I met Pastor Robert. I did serve as uh, uh, one of the pastors at Lake Avenue Church for during that time. So full-time school, full-time work. That was awesome. <laughs> but after I graduated, I spent a little bit of time out east at the Claremont Colleges as their university chaplain for that consortium of seven private liberal arts schools. And now I'm seeking ordination to minister of the word in the Christian Reformed Church of North America, for which I recorded my sermon this morning, but I'm not recording it now, so you can all breathe a sigh of relief, and I can go off script if I want to. Um, <laughs> So this text was assigned to me. I didn't pick it. I, I, I was really concerned, like, do I need to fit into the sermon series or do I need to stick with the theme? But I was glad for this text ultimately because the more I studied it, the more I thought to myself, wow, this is really appropriate for the year 2020 that we're going into. Here at the turn of the decade, going into an election year, I think it's helpful for us to think about what James is writing to us, about taming the tongue, about watching what we say, about being careful how we treat each other. 
And it's especially important for the church right now because the stakes are high at this pivotal time for the church in North America. This passage is about how we speak to one another, especially within the body of Christ. Because in James' time, Jewish Christians were about to see all the demographics shift, just like we are. Right at the, around the time that James was writing or that his letter was being circulated, Jewish Christianity was about to be supplanted by an influx of Gentile Christians. They would become the majority. Things would change. Culture would change. The things they did at their table would change. So James is writing to scattered Jewish believers who faced pressure as their demographics shifted, as their congregations shrank, one after another would collapse because of pressures within and pressures without. And he's writing concern to them about how to care for one another, how to speak to one another. At that time, the wealthy were oppressing impoverished Jewish Christians in ways that were similar to the kinds of things that Amos, the prophet, of old would call out and say, let justice roll down like waters. In the chaos and distress of it all, I think we too would have some difficulty finding the right words, healing words to say to churches under pressure. You know how I know that? It's because conflict still exists in churches just like this one that are struggling to look outward to bring in folks who need to hear a good word from God. We're busy enough among ourselves that it can interfere with our ministry outward. So what do we do? How do we find the right words to say? Or how do we avoid the wrong words to say? One of the things that I like to do is to occasionally Google the phrase, what not to say when, fill in the blank. Or what not to say to, fill in the blank. Right? So I'll give you an example what not to say to your doctor. What comes up is, don't tell your doctor what you Googled about your symptoms. <laughs> I did this once. I said, hey doc, I just, you know, I was looking up online. I, in fact, I, I threw in, I'm from a doctor's family. And he rolled his eyes and he said, all right, tell me what you found. And I knew that I had done something wrong. Recently, I, I did a little bit better. I walked into the allergist's office, and I saw a mug on the counter at the reception desk that said, please do not tell me what you Googled about your symptoms. <laughs> so that preemptive strike helped me out a little bit. You should probably Google at some point what not to say at a funeral. It, it could be really helpful. I've, I've continued to hear some really troubling things. And, you know, we do have to be careful about our wor words. In fact, I've worked in some places where the anxiety level is really high because well-meaning individuals made some really unfortunate word choices. In one place where I worked, an email was leaked that included an unfortunate word choice and that led to that person's termination. I worked in that, in that place. And I felt on edge, thinking, when am I going to get fired for something that I let slip out? Maybe I am not reformed enough in my mannerisms or my expressions, and there's something held over that I don't intend to say, but it comes out. Maybe I need to be careful about that. I lived with that anxiety. I know what that's like. Because the tongue can be devastating. 
It can be devastating anywhere. But for James this morning, the stakes are highest among believers. He's looking at us this morning. And he addresses this central question that many churches, I think, are grappling with in this day and age. How do we use our words with each other when the stakes are as high as they are? What do I mean by that? Why do I think that the stakes are really high? Three reasons. Number one, I think the next generation is at stake. Whether they end up in these pews has something to do with how you use your words with them. So I want to provide some guidance on that from God's word. Number two, your local congregation's witness in this city of Sierra Madre is at stake. Whether you can persuade people that God loves them by the way that you talk to each other, that's at stake. And number three, the community in this local congregation, which you have come to enjoy, which I hope you have. I don't know this congregation very well. Uh, I, this is my first time preaching. But I trust that some of you love this place. And you love it enough to stick it out for a long time. Others of you are new. But the community that you come to enjoy is at stake in the way that you speak to one another. And so to address these questions, James brings to us this word in chapter 3. You'll find it on page 1290. We're going to be there this morning. You're going to have your finger in a bunch of different verses. And I'm going to try to walk us through it. So let's take a look in verses 1 and 2. He opens this chapter by talking about how not many of us should be teachers. But then he goes on to talk about taming the tongue in general. So we have to make a decision here. Is this an instruction for teachers or is this an instruction for us generally? Well, obviously, I think that there's application for all of us. But let me first talk to those of us who would be teachers. These verses are true of teachers in two senses, generally and then specifically for James. Let's talk about the general sense in which this is true. We teachers, which one um, gentleman reminded me this morning after the first service, that includes every parent, and I think that that's by and large true. Teachers are judged by those who listen, and they listen in three, way, three possible ways. You can listen with faith, you can listen with skepticism, or you can listen with indifference. I want to talk about those three for a minute. I'm grateful to those people who have listened to me over the past 15, 20 years with faith. They've given me their attention. They've given me their time. They've entrusted it to me, and I hope I have been faithful. I even see some folks in this room whom I have spoken to before. I'm grateful for that trust. I hope to be trustworthy so that when you hear me, you can just relax and listen to the word of God. But ultimately, your trust, like the Bereans before you, should be in a faithful God whose word is true. A faithful God whose word is true and without error in all that it affirms, and the church's only infallible rule of faith and practice. Took that from your website. On the other end of the spectrum, I know what it's like to listen to a teacher with skepticism and criticism for at least two reasons. Number one, sometimes you know too much about the subject they're talking about. I'll talk about that in a second. 
Number two, sometimes you know too much about the person. Let's talk about knowing too much about the subject. So if you're a ministry intern here, I already said this to you this morning. If you're a seminarian here, I want to say this to you too. My experience, after I finished taking my first preaching class in seminary, I was instantly too big for my britches. I thought to myself, I can never listen to another sermon again. Everyone is doing it wrong. (laughs) Apparently, I wasn't the only one who felt that way because they thought I was doing it wrong too. But many of us seminary grads are ruined when it comes to listening to sermons because all we do is we have that mental checklist. Did they do this? Did they do that? Not very helpful when you, knew to, when you know too much about the subject. And to that, I just have to say, wait until you're in a position to be teaching week in and week out and receiving the kind of feedback that makes you grow as a, as a follower of Jesus and beckons you to love God's people more. Wait till you're in that position before you launch your criticisms and your emails to the pastor who spoke. Sometimes you know too much about the person. My family was here this morning. I don't like preaching in front of them. I'm glad they're not here now. They've already forbidden me to talk about them. My my two kids, I have a preteen and a teenager. I'm not supposed to talk about it, so I'm going to stop right there. But they see everything. They know too much about me. It's really easy for someone like me in this day and age, unlike the time that James lived in, to just go my separate way during the week. You won't see me unless you come find me in my office back there, and you won't get to know my day in and day out, but my kids know. And I have ministered to and met with a lot of pastor's kids and a lot of missionary kids. And I have a really challenging word for myself and for those of us who are in those shoes. Hypocrisy is really hard to fix. To undo the damage that hypocrisy does Man, I tremble. I trembled this morning as they were sitting right where you were. That's why I'm pointing at you. I trembled before them this morning because, you know, first of all, they looked so enthusiastic. (laughs) But secondly, you know, my daughter's 14, so anyway. (laughs) Brothers and sisters, how heartbreaking is it to know when a teacher's words are emptied of their power? because of the inconsistency of the life they live from Monday to Saturday. How heartbreaking is it to know that? I've known it, and it's true of me. It's hard to work with those missionary kids and pastor's kids. It's hard to work with all kids who have known the bitter taste of hypocrisy in their life. The third way to listen that teachers have to deal with is indifference. And some of you maybe are there this morning. I'm trying to get you. Indifference is the most challenging of all of them because as a teacher, it tempts me to entertain you, to scratch your itching ears, to work for your cheap approval, to pander to the crowd instead of pleasing the creator. What a mistake. But the author of our passage this morning is no cheap panderer. This is James, the brother of Jesus, leader of the church in Jerusalem, teaching in the wisdom tradition. If you read the Psalms and Ecclesiastes, you'll get a feel that the teachers of wisdom really have a grasp on the ups and downs of life. 
It's characteristic of wisdom literature to display deep knowledge of human experience, even contradictory experience, so that the writer will talk about something that's true and the opposite that's also true. And we have that here this morning as James writes in chapter 3. I'll show you two places where that's true. Put your finger in verse 2. Halfway through it says, If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. An analogy he's used in chapter 1. But then you just go straight down to verse 8, and he says very clearly, No human can tame the tongue. So which is it? And what do we do? Now, if we focused on verse 2, which, by the way, is addressed to teachers and the other one is not, if we focused on verse 2, we would say, we must strive. We have to really increase our effort. And you would walk out of these doors knowing that you have yet another burdensome thing to do. And some of you would rise to the occasion. And you would change the things you say. Others of you would think, what a burden, another thing to be repent of, another thing that I have to work on. But if we focused on verse 8, knowing that nobody can tame the tongue, we are left crying out for mercy, crying out for grace and deliverance from what the Apostle Paul in the book of Romans refers to as this body of death. There's a lot of metaphors here. But here in these first two verses, I think James is trying to teach us the first point of this, first cha- uh, this third chapter, which is this. We have to do what we say. We have to do what we say. So there's a lot of metaphors that are going to be strung together in this, in this chapter. But we don't try to decode the text. Rather, we want to get a sense of what wisdom can do for us and for our communities. So, watch, uh, do what you say. Verse 2. What is the moral connection between our speech and our action? What is the moral connection between our speech and our action? He talks about how many of us stumble, and he's referring to a specific type of stumbling. I think it's the disconnect between what we do and what we say, faithful speech and faithful action. To stumble means that we don't mean what we say. To stumble means that we don't follow through on what we say we'll do. To stumble means for our yes to become a maybe or maybe even a no. To stumble means to be duplicitous. And we all stumble in many ways, And to connect, to to break this connection between faithful speech and faithful action is supposed to be a non-starter for the household of God, especially for teachers, but for all of us as well. The first time I went to a water park, I was over 30 years old. I had been looking forward to it for 30 years, but the reason is because of this. I grew up in... uh, a small town in Oklahoma called Cleveland, Oklahoma. And we would have to drive about an hour to get to the mall. Um, I don't know why we went. No, actually, it was, we would drive an hour to get to the nearest Chinese grocery store. Yeah, that's what it was. I said that wrong this morning. It was a Chinese grocery store. And on our way back, we would spend the whole day in Tulsa because, you know, we drove an hour. We might as well spend the whole day there. 
On the way back, every time we would pass by Big Splash. It's the only water park for miles and miles and miles. And I would see this towering slide. I don't think I had even seen a commercial for it, but I knew what happened on that slide. Kids had fun. One time, my dad said, as we were driving by late in the evening on our way home, he said, you guys want to go to Big Splash? And I said, yeah, we want to go to Big Splash. My dad said, okay. And he never brought it up again, and we never went. You can see why at age 30, I had the time of my life at Raging Waters over here. (laughs) It was so great, and I took my kids, and I thought they were so much more privileged than I am. It's wonderful for them. James is stringing together some words here to show us what kind of outsized power, one commentator says, outsized power that the tongue can have. I don't know if my dad intended to get my hopes up, but it happened. He ended up playing on a longing that I had. And that stuck with me to this day. It helps me to remember to let my yes be a yes. The tongue can also have the power to destroy, to burn, as we'll see in verse 6. I worked long enough in uh, college and young adult ministry to see some pretty horrific things. One of the things that I experienced when I was working at a church I'll spare you the details for confidentiality reasons, but suffice it to say that this person, this young adult in our group, of all things, lied to us about their cancer diagnosis. They had no cancer diagnosis. The amount of energy that we expended trying to care for that person, the number of trips we took to doctor's appointments that they never went to, reduced our little college and young adult fellowship from 30 exuberant, excited people to about six. Our community was wrecked by a lie, a a particularly toxic lie. But the tongue has outsized power to affect the highest hopes and the most miserable depths of human experience. And James knows this, and so he tells us that instead... We should do what we say. It seems simple. But in addition to that, when we look at verses 3 through 8, James tells us to watch very carefully. Watch what you say for two reasons. Number one, our words are disproportionately powerful. And number two, our words are disproportionately destructive. We've already been talking about that a little bit, but let's look at verse 3 through 5. Here's the analogies. We put bits in the mouths of horses, and then the body will obey us. A ship is controlled by a rudder. We don't have to determine who here is a horse and who here is a ship and who's steering the wheel. That's not the point of what James is trying to say. He's trying to say, look what can happen. There's too much power in this thing. Behold the power. You know, you can even speak things into being. You can... Condition results based on a little word. There's a phenomenon that has been thoroughly measured and studied called stereotype threat. I'll give you an example. If you say to a certain group of people, before they take a math test, hey, you know what? I'm going to give you a little extra time because I heard folks like you 
really needs some advantages on a test like this. Those people will do measurably worse than a group of people who you didn't say that to. Now, not everybody is vulnerable to the same threat, but it works with certain groups of people, and you can measure that. The opposite is also true. There's something called stereotype lift. If you say, you know what? I heard you folks are great at this kind of exam. Those people, certain groups of people, will do measurably better than those who were not told that just prior to taking the exam. You can speak things into being. You can change the entire course of life, verse 6, of a child by telling them who you think they are. So we watch what we say with great care. One of the things that we kind of committed to doing was to not tell our kids, you know, how beautiful they are or really how smart they are, although I think that they're beautiful and smart. I want to extol them for the virtues of Jesus Christ, how loving they are, how kind they are. I want to speak into being a kind of space, a kind of home that enables my kids to unfold their virtue. And I hope that we learn something from that as well. So our words are disproportionately powerful, but they're also disproportionately destructive in verses 6 through 8. It's worth reading this again. The tongue is a fire. Worlds of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life. Literally, the wheel of origin and set itself, set on fire by hell, for every kind of bird and beast, of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed since Genesis 1 by mankind. But, verse 8, no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. Look at all the terrible things that the tongue can do. It sets things on fire. Because it itself is a small fire about which Southern Californians know a little something. It itself is a fire. It's also a world of unrighteousness. It's the point of contact, the way we know how we interact with the wicked world around us. Does our tongue reflect it in a kind of violent speech that hurts others? Or is it somehow different because of the interventions of God? This fiery tongue is set among us. It's here with you in this place, in this room. And it will defile us, scorching the entire course of life. Set on fire by Gehenna, that place outside the city walls of Jerusalem where trash was burning day and night, where kings were fabled to take infants to be ritually sacrificed. It is the image of hell in the New Testament which tells us the destiny of a tongue like that and a people under its sway. These are scary words from James, who does not pull any of his punches. Now, you might think, gee, if the tongue is that destructive, well, maybe I should just shut up and never say anything. And certainly, there are people who are averse to saying a difficult word for the sake of right how many times have you failed to speak up when you know it was right to do so? 
Well, I want you to know that James has plenty of other examples where he doesn't do that. In fact, in chapter 5, verses 1 through 6, he launches into a tirade against wealthy people who were oppressing impoverished Jewish Christians. He says in verse 1 of chapter 5, Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. And in verse 6, you have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He's not afraid to say what needs to be said, but he exercises wisdom that is from above chapter 4, which is what we need to learn. So it doesn't mean that you never speak a difficult word, but some of us, some of us like to think that our straight talk, our tough love, our telling it like it is, comes from heavenly wisdom. And James has one reminder for us. Not many of you should become teachers. Instead, James uses his tongue to protect and nurture the people of God who are in distress. Brothers and sisters, are you in distress this morning? James has a protective, healing word for you. In distress, in James' day, meant poor and persecuted, people who could not find space at the table who knew that the table didn't even belong to them, that someone else built it too high or too low. In verse 9, he helps them to not take up the rhetorical weapons of those who have injured them already. He talks about blessing instead of cursing. He's trying to help them understand what to do with their mouths. And let me give you an illustration of how this, this works. I also teach at Fuller Seminary uh, a course in ethics. One of the, the course that I teach that has belonged to me now for five years, I think, is the Theology and Ethics of Martin Luther King. And it's a, it's a really great class. I'm learning a lot from the students. I always do every quarter. I teach it. There's a range of responses to the life and work and speeches of Dr. King. I've heard it from pulpits. I've heard it from regular folks in conversation. I've heard it from politicians. Talk about knowing too much about a subject that really ruining listening to a teacher. I I see a a really awful spectrum of responses to Dr. King. Some want to take his words and redact them, edit them, domesticating Dr. King's revolutionary life and words, rendering them nice little sentiments, powerless platitudes, declawed of their shame-inducing sting so that it requires no effort on our part to do the kind of revolutionary things that he asked us to consider thereby cheapening grace itself. But some of my students, on the other hand, have criticized Dr. King, viewing him as a tool of respectability politics, wasting his time and his blood and his followers' blood on an audience that would never take him seriously. I am personally acquainted both with the former temptation to domesticate King and the latter suspicion worrying if things will ever change. Those two ends of the spectrum affect the way my tongue works when I speak. But what I believe I'm noticing from my students is that those of them who have suffered under the newest strategies and latest innovations of the evil one, they learn something. They learn in the most tragic way how to pick up the soul-destroying weapons that hurt them and to use them. 
And in so doing, the moment they take up that weapon, they become trapped in what verse 6 calls a wheel of origin, a whole course of life that doesn't stop spinning until there is a mighty intervention. We talked this morning, we prayed in the prayers of people, prayers of the people for those who are struggling to forgive. And you need to know that's me too. Because it creates monsters of us. C.S. Lewis describes both that monstrousness and that mighty intervention in the voyage of the Don Treader. When Eustace, horrible boy, turns into a dragon, out of his greed, he takes a bracelet. It magically clasps onto him and he transforms into a beast that no one recognizes. And in a, in a spark of his fallenness, he thinks to himself, well, now that I'm a dragon, I could just eat all the people I don't like. But then he begins to claw at the place with his dragon's teeth, but he could not get the bracelet off. And as he had that nasty thought, C.S. Lewis writes this, The moment he thought this, he realized that he didn't want to eat his friends. He wanted to be friends. He wanted to get back among humans and talk and laugh and share things. Because that's what humans do. He realized that he was a monster cut off from the whole human race. An appalling loneliness came over him. He began to see that the others had not really been fiends at all. And he began to wonder if he himself had been such a nice person as he had always supposed. He longed for their voices. He would have been grateful for a kind word even from Reepicheep. Into a a situation where people were tempted to transform themselves into their ugliest selves, to violently overthrow their Roman captors, James speaks a word of wisdom from above that is, First pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy, and good fruits, impartial and sincere. He paints a picture of a different kind of way of using our tongues, but watching what we say. And the question for us is, how do we do this? How do we do differently? Especially when he says in verse 8 that no one can tame the tongue. Well, he teaches us in verses 9 through 12, maybe not directly, but he teaches us the third point that we are to pursue peace with what we say. That's why he invokes the doctrine of the image of God in verse 9. With our tongue, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. He's sticking to Genesis chapters 1 through 9. The non-human creation was placed under human care. Every kind of animal, we tamed them. We cultivated the land. But then we messed it all up. And in Genesis chapter 9, we're reminded the reason we don't take a life is because it is a direct affront to God who loves that life made in God's image. The reason we don't curse is because it curses a life that God finds precious. And James accuses his audience of murder in chapter 4, verse 2. It's probably not the case that his audience was all murderers, but more that he's reflecting on the Jesus tradition which teaches us that to say raka about your brother, you fool, is to murder that brother in your own heart. So we dare not curse because of what it does to us. We just ended 
10 years of wonderful neighborliness with the person that lived next door to us in our, in our neighborhood. And we ended in a pretty, pretty sad and depressing way. It was not pretty. In the last year, I'll spare you the details, we did something that they didn't like. They responded to our family in a way that I really didn't like. They responded to my children in a way that really incensed me. And every morning as I passed by my neighbor's home, I struggled to love them. I struggled to bless them. I struggled not to curse them. And I've talked to a lot of folks who are like me on their HOA boards. It's just full of that stuff. It's full of that stuff. But every morning as I pass by, I at least acknowledge this. God, I am struggling. And I'd rather struggle than to give in to anger and to give it a foothold. Brothers and sisters, work for peace with your words. I began to pass by each morning and say, God bless my neighbor, even if I don't want that to happen. God bless my neighbor. You can't make yourself want something. But God can help you with that. In verses 10 through 12, James teaches us to actively seek the purity and peace of God's people. James is not surprised as if he's scandalized by bad actors among the scattered Jewish believers. He strings together a number of commonplace agricultural images to make absurd creations. Of course, bad water doesn't come from a good spring. He's reflecting on Jesus' teaching. Bad fruit doesn't come from a good tree. Things are not the way they're supposed to be. So, Christchurch, I'm hoping and praying that this congregation, this church, would be a place like it's supposed to be, a place where people can come and find healing, to find rest when they're weary. And maybe that's you this morning. You're weary, longing for a good word. Well, this church has put it on its website that they're committed to hospitality. I read that last night. Hospitality, that there's a space at the table for everyone. I'm hoping, like James was hoping, that this would be a community where there are not many would-be teachers. Instead, many people who ask questions and listen to learn. Now, let me qualify what I just said. I have sat through so many professional trainings about active listening, cross-cultural this, diversity, that, how to listen to each other. Many of them conclude with the admonition that we are to become better listeners, to listen actively, which means to reflect back to somebody what you just heard. So if somebody says to me, Jeff, it really hurt me that you did this, I'm supposed to reflect back to them to say, so-and-so, it sounds like I really hurt you when I did this. And that's a really important skill that I learned in premarital counseling when I was a young married and also the training that I received to conduct with young couples. It's foundational skill, active listening, but it leaves the speaker waiting for the other half of a faithful response, which is to move toward them in an embrace that lasts, that says, you are welcome here. I've heard you. Let's stay together. That's by far more difficult than active listening. 
The second piece of practical advice. When you're welcoming folks to this table at Christ Church, and you want to ask some questions, and you want to listen and learn about the people that are dining with you, especially at the Lord's table. I'll just tell you a quick story. There's a difference between putting someone on the spot and making space at the table when you ask questions. Um, I have heard the question just way too many times by really well-intended folks. And I know very few people here, so I'm not talking about anyone specific. Can you tell me what it's like to be a minority? It's a, I hear some gasps. Thank you for gasping. That helps me a little bit. I'm not a super sensitive person that I know of, but that question definitely puts me on the spot. When you're learning about someone who's different from you, you've decided to share the table with them, how would you ask me for my story that doesn't make me feel like an alien weirdo? Hey, you're different. Tell me about that. <laughs> how do you ask that question? You've got to develop a new skill for that. How would you make space at your table for me to let my story come out because I feel comfortable? How would you do that? What signals do you send? How do you watch your words to make sure I'm welcome there? How would you make space for me to feel comfortable enough to tell you that, no, things are not okay? No, things are not fine. How do you do that? You see, hospitality at a table is so much more than being good at entertaining guests, though that can totally be part of it. Hospitality is also creating an environment where dividing walls of hostility have a chance to come down. When you've seen enough of the messiness of someone's life and they know all about your respectful disagreement with their choices, but they still feel your non-condemning presence and faithfulness to them, I think that's more the kind of hospitality that folks are looking for. I had one guy tell me about our friendship and about my home. He says, you know, Jeff, I always remember the time I came over and I just took my shirt off and just rolled around on your living room floor. And it's like, uh-huh. <laughs> I remember that too. He felt really comfortable. I'm mostly glad that I created that kind of environment. It's about making sure people feel like they can, I don't know, what's the, what's the expression? Let their hair down? Is that it? Yeah, anyway. So I want people to know where I stand. I want to be clear. I want them to know that I will be with them no matter what. I hope that's true of this church. Now, last thing I'll say. All the practical advice that I just gave and just talked about, I could deliver in a university context or in a workplace, and I have on a number of occasions, without any reference to Jesus Christ. What is it that makes Christian community different, if anything? University communities are famous or perhaps infamous for what has become referred to as safe spaces, which has become kind of a byword for people who are really concerned about what's happening in younger generations. A lot of criticism has been thrown at people who talk about the need for safety on the college campus because it's affected what we've traditionally understood to be the free exchange of ideas and open inquiry. 
Now, universities have heard especially the complaints of conservatives who think that safe spaces are a completely ludicrous idea. And they've moved on, therefore. And instead of talking about safe spaces, they talk about brave spaces, where people are learning, especially young people are learning, that it's okay to agree to disagree, and that you shouldn't take things personally. Now, sometimes things are personal. It's a delicate balance to walk, but people are trying to figure out, because of the negative backlash against what are referred to as safe spaces, folks are working hard on this. In many cases, harder than a lot of churches that I've been a part of conversations at. But I keep coming back to this one uniqueness that should mark Christian community. Brothers and sisters, all the techniques in the world cannot substitute for knowing a risen Savior who leaves our tongues tied speechless before an indescribable gift of grace. So that perhaps what makes a Christian different is that they are silenced and their mouths are shut before an awesome God. Maybe after you've spent some time in silence and your heart has undergone a renovation, then out of the fullness of your heart, your mouth speaks a word that is good news to people in Sierra Madre and the San Gabriel Valley. Not many of us should be teachers, but all of us witnesses, faithful witnesses of the grace of God in the Lord Jesus Christ. I pray that for this community, I hope that as you make space at your table, you learn with great skill how to welcome people, listen to their stories, and watch your table change. Watch it completely change. So it's not your table, it's our table. It's the Lord's table. Can I pray for you? Oh God, we give you thanks for your incarnation. This week we celebrate that you came from sapphire paved courts to a dirty floor, crowded home, that you entered into our chaos that you saw the decisions that we were making. You lifted our heads, and the soul knew its worth. God, we give you thanks for the incarnation. We give you thanks for coming into our world and into our lives, and we pray that we would do the same, that we would enter into the lives of others, and by that be transformed ourselves because you are there. Oh God, lead us by your Holy Spirit to places where we can speak a word of hospitality. And in so doing, God, help us to do what we say. Help us to watch what we say. And, oh God, help us to pursue peace with one another through the words we speak. All for the glory of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. <laughs>